You're listening to the Upside Down Podcast. A place for unscripted conversations on life and faith. Join us as we discuss what it looks like when Jesus turns our lives upside down. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening to episode 19 of Upside Down. I'm Kayla Craig, and with me are co-host Lindsay Wallace and Christy James. And today we have kind of an exciting guest. We're thrilled to have Salem Afengade. She's a friend of the podcast. She's a bold and brave woman of God. She's an immigration attorney and an immigrant herself. And I just have to introduce a little bit more to you because I honestly, we had to dig a little bit to get some information about Salem <laughs> because she... She is very humble. She is, no, I was totally stalking her, but I will say it's because she's very humble. So she currently lives in <clears throat> Montgomery, Alabama. And I feel like I should say that with a southern accent. Like with a yeah. southern Yeah, Montgomery. <laughs> and she from Nigeria to Alabama when she was 14. And in less than eight years, she graduated early from high school, received a law degree when she was 20, which is amazing, worked in Washington, D.C. to help victims of human trafficking and domestic violence. And just this November, she launched her own law firm focused largely on immigration law. So, Salem, we're so excited to have you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, ladies, for having me. I'm super pumped. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I don't even know where to go from there (laughs) because you have quite... The experience under your belt. <laughs> I know quite a bit. I, I hear you say all of that, and I, I sometimes I kind of feel like, wait, when did I do that? Like, right. I really <laughs> but when? I'm sure on Sundays you're like, like, oh, that's why I'm so tired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what I am, I mean, I'm super interested in all of your story, but I would love to know that pivotal moment in your life when you knew that you wanted to go into immigration law? Oh, that's a good one. So (laughs) I actually, it wasn't an aha moment, which I feel like is intensely disappointing when I see it, because I feel like everything in my life has been so dramatic that it really wasn't as dramatic Mm. as a bunch of other things. But for me, while I was in the middle of working with survivors of human trafficking in D.C., I realized that the survivors that were immigrants were just the ones that really kind of fit with me and were gravitating more towards me and that I Mm. did more good advocating and working their cases because I understood the immigration Mm. side of things. And so even though I wasn't an attorney yet, fully an attorney, I could still relate to the immigrant part of what they were doing. And I knew immigration law enough to help and work on their cases. And I felt Mm -hmm. like those survivors were probably the most vulnerable because even though all the survivors were extremely vulnerable, they had an extra layer of a big looming immigration status on their hands. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I went to DC kind of with the understanding that I would get some experience of working like face to face, shoulder to shoulder with survivors. And then I would go to to the UN and be an advocate for survivors of human trafficking or go to the International Criminal Court and prosecute kind of victim against women cases or violence against women cases. And in D.C., in the middle of that, I realized that I wasn't going to go to the U.N. anymore. (laughs) And so I but I just kind of low key really enjoyed working with immigrants, really enjoyed also working with some of the nonprofits that were learning from our nonprofit about how to structure their businesses, what to do with survivors. I really enjoyed working with those nonprofits as well. And so when I graduated, my practice really became 
working with immigrants, working with small businesses and nonprofits that were looking for some legal assistance and just for another kind of personal support. And I just found my happy place to be there. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's easy for a lot of us to say, well, that that's good for you, but, but not for me. But I think as believers and as followers of Jesus, we all need to be advocates for those who are on the margins. In your experience, how can we do that? I think a lot of it comes from humility. Mm. And I, I have nothing in common with survivors of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so working in that field was very humbling to me. And I think the best thing I did when I was going to work with survivors was I didn't just work with the survivors, I lived with them. And they were the people who saw me in the middle of the night with my pajamas. I just lived (laughs) with them and they became my people. And how did you live with them? So I worked at the organization I worked for had a shelter. And they were looking for people to sponsor to kind of stay overnight at the shelter. And they couldn't really find a lot of people that were willing to stay at the shelter. Mm -hmm. And since I was new to the D.C. area and didn't really have anywhere to stay, I told them I would move into the shelter. Mm. (laughs) And so I didn't have to pay D.C. rent. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) I ended up moving into the shelter. um, And I just, you know, I worked there most of the nights and I would coordinate with other volunteers who wanted to be there um, on some weekends when I had off. But I lived there I had a separate room Mm -hmm. and I just lived there with them Mm. and how did you I I don't think we mentioned this but how did you get connected with working with survivors in the first place yeah so I had gone to a conference had a story about a lady that was trafficked it just really hit me Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. it 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 hit me and I said okay this is something I want to learn everything about And so I read a lot about it. I did some research on it. And the more I just got involved, the more opportunities were open and doors were open. Um, And a friend of my sister to a friend of mine worked at the organization in D.C. And so because Mm -hmm. I had done a lot of work, because I put in a lot of free volunteer hours, she invited me to come up there and really get some face to face, shoulder to shoulder experience working with survivors. And it was Mm -hmm. at a time when I was praying, looking for what to do at that particular summer. And it just felt like it fit. And so it it was a very organic thing. Like, I didn't think I would ever have an opportunity to do that. But I think when you're kind of proven in the faithful, when you're proven faithful in the little, you're given mm-hmm. more, more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that really, that opportunity just really opened my eyes to, again, coming, serving as a part of incarnational living versus mm-hmm. going into rescue, going into save. Because I found that a lot of my survivors that I worked with did not connect with the idea of being saved at all or mm-hmm. being rescued. Mm-hmm. And, right. Yeah, and they hated the notion and the concept that they needed to be saved or rescued. And so mm-hmm. to them, I was just a friend who knew a little bit more about the law than they did and mm-hmm. could use mm-hmm. some of the information that they were telling me to build a case for them. Mm-hmm. So, Salem, you kind of have an interesting story. You know, you were spending time with people, really getting to know them, investing, and you kind of have an interesting story of what other attorneys who are maybe a little bit further down in in their practice told you about kind of this compassion and empathy and connection with others. Yeah. So I, one of the reasons I started, um, my law practice and my law practice where I work is actually the U.S. office of my family's global law firm. So my family has a law firm internationally. Mm -hmm. And when I decided, when I was trying to 
prayed through what I was going to do after I left the firm that I was at, I decided I was going to start my own practice, mostly because I looked for jobs at other places. And one of the weaknesses that kept coming back from different attorneys doing interviews was that I cared too much. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. if I wanted to be really successful in the practice of law, I had to remove myself from the situation a lot of the times. And, wow. you know, my dad said the same thing. My dad is a really successful attorney and he said the same thing. And he said, you know, you just, you have to stop caring as much as you do. You have to stop taking your cases home. You have to kind of detach yourself because that's how you're going to have long-term sustainability. But I've always felt that my ability to care and my empathy was the strongest thing that I ever, was the strongest gift that I had. Mm -hmm. And so in figuring out what I wanted to do, I had to create a business model and a structure based on me caring without me being burnt out. Mm -hmm. by caring and in doing that I realized the only way I would be able to do that was kind of by going the solo path rather than doing going in with other attorneys who didn't really value the Mm -hmm. fact that I Mm -hmm. cared too much right right so Salim while we're on this topic of you looking for jobs um there was an executive order signed today right that has to do with immigration (laughs) and jobs that I know you have some feelings about could you so I as someone who lives in a city that's 80 percent foreign born and since most of the executive orders that are coming out have to do with immigration and and just practices that have to do with people who are immigrants or who came to our country some kind of way I try to read them and it's like gibberish so (laughs) I have a hard time understanding like what does this actually mean and I'm really lucky to have attorney friends who help me figure it out but could you explain kind of for our listeners what today's executive order means for folks Yes. So we're still fleshing it out with some other immigration attorneys to see exactly what the implications are. So this is not, of course, this is all informational. This is not legal advice. Mm -hmm, Um, This is just my perspective and kind of the perception of other people that I've talked to. But the the order is kind of phrased as, you know, buy American, hire American. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And it's phrased as a way to protect the American Uh, to protect American jobs from foreign invasions. And the particular, the main section that the order is dealing with is this class of immigration, of employment immigration called H-1B visas. And basically what the path to that is when you graduate from college on a student visa, um, the only way you can get a job is to switch from your student visa to an employee's visa, which is typically an H-1B visa. And an Mm -hmm. H-1B visa is the visa that gives people in specialty occupations jobs. So any job that basically requires a college degree or a master's degree or a professional degree to get, you get, you can get an H-1B visa for that. Mm -hmm. The problem is there are about 65,000 to 85,000 H-1B visa slots that are available every year. And you have close to 150 to 200,000 applications that are turned in every year Mm -hmm. for H-1B visas. So already there's like a cap system. The petition fee comes out between like $2,000 to $6,000, depending on your attorney's fees, added to the fees that you pay to USCIS. And there are really strict regulations on who can get an H-1B visa, what organizations can apply for an H-1B visa, um, the timings that you can apply for an H-1B visa. So there, there are all these really strict regulations already on an immigrant student coming out of school wanting to get a job. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. you have to show proof that you've advertised the job positions and American workers are not being put in jeopardy for this immigrant to get a job. 
So there's already in stone, there are things that are set in place to make sure that this visa status is not being abused by employers. Now, of course, there's also a minimum wage requirement based on your city. So you can't pay less than a minimum wage. You have to pay what the minimum wage is. So the the perk of that for employers is that they can hire more qualified people for mm-hmm. um, less qualified positions mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. most people that are out of school and trying to find a job to pay back student loans or something are just looking to get a job. And so once they get a job, the positions don't matter. They just need a job position. Mm-hmm. And so because it has been abused in that way, also you do have, because the system is a lottery-based system, I think there are some companies that turn in about maybe uh, 10,000 applications. So they have more yeah. of a shot of their people getting into the system because it's all lottery-based. Once you have over the 65,000 people that turn it in, everything else is lottery-based. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a giant mess. But essentially the order today is putting in it's attempting to make the H-1B process harder, attempting to find, to make USCIS create more ways to make that process a lot more limited to certain higher class individuals. So like more professionals, like people who have PhDs versus just bachelor level jobs, and also to increase the fees for the filing fees from USCIS to these companies. Now, the most recent, one of my most recent clients paid about, $6,000 to file an H-1B petition for their client. And the petition was denied. And so that's an extra $6,000 for a job in addition to the salary. And that petition was denied. So that's, that's, Mm -hmm. they don't get that employee, all the money that they put into trying to hire their employee was wasted. All the money that they put Mm -hmm. into pay to the USCIS, the customs officials were wasted. So what that does for companies and organizations is it completely de de incentivize? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that word. <laughs> them from hiring foreign employees. Sure. And so just the gravity of that alone, and I understand just from my perspective of job searching, while an immigrant, I understand the amount of hurdles that an immigrant has to go through to be 10 times as good for a job that is really, really, really below them because they just need an end to the system, some mm-hmm. kind of way that is legal. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's really unfortunate and it's really hard because I do understand that from the perspective of this companies, it's not lucrative for them to try to hire immigrants unless right. they know that the turnover that they're making will be worth what they're hiring. But then from the immigrants perspective, it just means that they're more limited on, to the jobs that they can apply for and they're more limited to even being able to apply for jobs. Mm-hmm. All right. yeah. I feel like you explained that really well, and I'm still confused. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it takes the immigration code. I still don't fully understand the whole immigration code. So, Mm -hmm. and I've been practicing for about two years. Mm -hmm. So it takes, it takes a lot of like roundabout understanding of the immigration code. So you're saying that people that just go on Facebook and throw up (laughs) a, a status that have no experience in immigration in any way, shape, or form probably don't know what they're talking about. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, it's funny to me, uh, a few months ago, there was an article done about my work, and a lot of people were talking about, you know, were saying, in the comments of the article was full of, well, she needs to be disbarred if she's representing illegal immigrants, which I don't use the word illegal. I don't think oh anyone is mm-hmm. undocumented. But there were so many people talking about how the fact that I was either representing illegal immigrants needed 
not legal. And so I needed to be disbarred. And so they were calling my bar license into credibility. And the, mm. the biggest way to understand that people are ignorant is when people say that undocumented immigrants don't have any rights. Because that's exactly like saying right. that criminals, who people who have been accused of a crime, don't have any rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like there are certain rights that people are entitled to. So lots of people put up statuses and tend to have an opinion on immigration, but they don't even understand the basics of American immigration law or mm-hmm. what led to American immigration law being the immigration laws that it, they are right now. Right. Mm. So one of the one of the Facebook posts that just made me almost laugh out loud but in like a oh gosh that's really sad kind of way is I don't even remember which executive order it was but it was early on in Trump's presidency and you had posted a concern that you had and just kind of explaining I love reading your Facebook post because like I said I I read them and I'm like I don't know what this means and you (laughs) explain it in a way that is really helpful and so you were kind of laying out one of the executive orders and had mentioned your father. I think maybe you're concerned about him coming to visit you possibly. And someone commented that was basically like telling you what, you know, like what they knew about. And I was like, (laughs) the irony of someone telling an immigration attorney about immigration. Like it blew my mind that there was somebody out there who thought they knew better than an immigration attorney. Mm -hmm. It's really funny. You know, like, I I see a lot of that as a Black woman, and I hate to make this about race, but it just has to be about Mm -hmm, race in some mm -hmm, way, because mm -hmm. I think people don't really think that I have the credibility that I do, and so I have to tell them, listen, I graduated from law school at 20. I am pretty (laughs) smart. Like, I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The fact that I automatically always get, well, are you sure? Or, like, do you need to go read that again? Or I actually think, I think this is what it says, and people try to argue with my intellectual interpretation mm-hmm. of something that I've spent years studying and trying to understand. It's always really mm-hmm. funny. To me. Right. Yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So, so you, oh, go, we go have ahead. so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> can you bust some like just general immigration myths for us? Cause I think, I don't know, I've read tons of stuff and I mean, I have seriously limited interaction with immigration but my daughter is an immigrant and so we've interacted with USCIS and gone through that process so I know a tiny bit more than the average person but I see people saying things like I don't know I'm not even going to say some of the things but (laughs) could you maybe could you maybe bust just some of the general myths about the immigration process for us that misconceptions that you you interact with oh I think one of my big ones is that undocumented people don't pay taxes Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. that's a really, really crazy one, because the thing is, the IRS system and the USCIS system have nothing in common. And so lots of undocumented people are able to pay taxes because that is completely on the IRS system and have has nothing to do with the USCIS system. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. one of the executive orders that um, 45th wanted to pass was talking about the collaborations between systems, which would actually de-incentivize undocumented people from being able to pay taxes because now USCIS will have their information if there's a collaboration between these agencies. Mm -hmm, So that's a big one that always kind of makes me really frustrated because people talk about how their taxpayer dollars are going to fund undocumented people and actually undocumented people pay for the services. Also, lots of undocumented people cannot, there's no way for them to become legal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so people think, you know, let, let them just do it right. And there is, there really is no pathway. No path. yeah. yeah. 
for an undocumented person to become legal unless, you know, maybe there's an asylum claim, but an asylum claim has to be filed within two years of you coming into the country. And so Mm -hmm. if you miss that without knowing that you could be qualified for asylum, Mm -hmm. asylum claims take up to 10 years to be resolved. So you could literally be sitting Mm -hmm. for 10 Mm -hmm. years with no resolution and no idea of your immigration status. And because of that, you can't work legally. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is has to be under the table if you're undocumented. Also, another big one that I really dislike is that immigrants are kind of your lower tier mm-hmm. of society. Mm-hmm. Like people think of immigrants and there's apparently um, the president has branded immigrants as um, rapist Mexicans for some reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so whenever people think of immigrants, they automatically think of illegal people they think of Mexicans and they think of people that are doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's been really important and really empowering for me to stand up and say in social circles or in political circles and educational circles that I'm an immigrant, Mm -hmm. I'm an attorney. I am a face of what an immigrant looks like. I am a taxpaying American benefiting Mm -hmm. human. And that is what an immigrant looks like. Mm -hmm. I was at a conference last week and one of the guys talked, he was talking about, Um, undocumented immigrants and he said you know all that the immigrants are good for Mm -hmm. is for babysitting your kids Mm -hmm. when your wife is at work and um, yeah and like being your what what did he say being your janitors and I just wow yeah I reinforced after the conference and after he was done that I'm an immigrant (laughs) and I'm an attorney Mm -hmm. and you know I think that people just have the stereotypes of what an immigrant looks like and what an immigrant does and that immigrants are leeching off of the American system when that's not true Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think those are my biggest kind of busting I can think of so many others oh I'm sure you have plenty (laughs) And this is Kayla, and I'm I'm glad that you talked about, you know, just kind of this whole muck and mire that comes with um, illegal immigration, and I was at our denomination's um, kind of yearly conference, and they had Matthew Sorens and um, Jenny Yang, and they're from World Relief, and they were really informing all of us as people in the church community and as ministry leaders, kind of how hard it really is to to work through that system. And it really blew my mind. And, and I just didn't, there was so much I didn't know. We don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And then once we know it, we can't go back. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's really sad. Like I think so many people, just the weight of, you know, because I'm in the immigrant community, some of my closest friends are immigrants. Mm-hmm. And the weight of constantly having to worry about your status, you can't ever fly out of a country without making sure yeah. that everything, you know, is up to date. A friend of ours was talking about taking a spontaneous trip to Mexico. And she was the only non-immigrant in our friend group. And we were all like, actually, <laughs> we can't go because, you know, like there's so many things that people don't think about. But Mm-hmm. As an immigrant, these are the things that are on your mind every single day. And mm-hmm. that, that comes with a weight of its own. And then that's even as a legal immigrant. And so as an undocumented immigrant, there's right. so like there's a constant fear of being caught. There's a constant fear of breathing, of living, of going grocery shopping, of being stopped, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. without a license. Everything breeds so much fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that that I think has happened with perhaps this is Christy, by the way. But with this, um, like, really narrow 
um, model or stereotype of what an immigrant looks like, like you just mentioned. Like one of the the other things that I think it seems like is going along with that is that there's a lot of fear being kind of pumped into culture. So like this is who the immigrant is and you should be afraid of them. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious to know, and this is, uh, this question is basically like, you know, in term, it's aimed at helping grow empathy, <laughs> either based on your own experience or the experience of your clients. Can you just talk a little bit about what that feels like to kind of have this overarching statement made that you are someone to be afraid of because you are an immigrant or does that ring true at all? Yeah, I think it does. And I think for me, I'm just going to get personal, Mm -hmm. but for me, that fear stems again, not just from being an immigrant, but from being a person of color. Mm -hmm. And so the, the twofold responses that I get and the twofold things that I battle are being feared Mm -hmm. or being seen as not able to care for myself because Mm -hmm. I think people always put Africans in the box of poor and Mm -hmm. always needy Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so I I mean that's something that I wrestle with every day because I feel like I have to overcompensate by making people feel incredibly safe Mm -hmm. when they're around Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. and so even Mm -hmm. though naturally I feel like people are safe around me but I do feel the tendency to overcompensate by Mm -hmm. kind of tuning myself completely down Mm -hmm. all the way. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think there are very few people in my friend circles where I can be a hundred percent myself because I'm constantly worrying about, okay, I'm an immigrant. I have to prove that mm-hmm. I'm not, that I have everything together and that I'm not taking anyone's job and mm-hmm. that I'm not, you know, I'm not all these things that people are afraid of. Mm-hmm. And then I'm a black woman. So I have to make sure that I don't come across as angry, <laughs> as, sassy, mm-hmm. as um, manipulative. Like I, these are all the stereotypes that people have of me. Mm-hmm. And so I have to constantly in every space, prove them wrong. And that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. Yeah. To live, and it really is a barrier, barrier to true community. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. they're even in, within my church community, which I love, there are very few people that, I can talk to you when I'm kind of scared about immigration issues or mm-hmm. when I'm um, really angry about something without feeling the need to pacify mm-hmm. and explain myself and justify the anger and justify the hurt and the pain and the frustration. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, so so how, how can, <laughs> yeah, that was so good. I just want to go back to when you're talking about like your faith community, how can people of faith, how can we be good listeners and how can we be compassionate when we're talking about things that might dredge up fear in, in some of us? Hmm. I think asking in an authentic space, because Mm. I think lots of people in my church community ask how I'm doing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's kind of, it's in passing. And I don't really feel like they actually want to know how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And right. so that question now becomes another way for me to pacify and say that I'm okay and that I'm strong because mm-hmm. I don't think that they can handle right. Right. that. And so I think what that would look like for me and the people that have been willing to go deep are people who have done the research, who know specific issues when they come up, who know that there's a new executive order coming up and reach out to me kind of preemptively mm-hmm. to see how mm-hmm. I feel about it. Those are the people 
that or see something in the news and just tell me they were thinking about me or (laughs) you know like don't really wait for me to educate them because the burden of education is heavy and people kind of look to me to educate them um there's a sense of heaviness that comes with that and so I don't get to feel Mm -hmm. and I don't get to process Mm -hmm. I become the educator Mm -hmm. and so I think just creating spaces for your immigrant community to be human um not to try to um kind of explain away their feelings and so if someone says I remember the day after the first executive order and I went to church and I was just broken and I, I sing at a worship team at my church. And so I'm singing at the worship team and I'm so angry and I'm so angry. And I've never like, I've never worshiped angry before. Mm-hmm. And so I'm angry and I'm worshiping and I'm like all a mess. And after church, one of the ladies comes up to me and she's crying and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Cause I think I posted something on Facebook, mm-hmm. always on mm-hmm. Facebook. <laughs> she, and I was angry and then I had to comfort her because she was upset. Mm-hmm. And I did not like so I couldn't grieve and I couldn't be angry and I couldn't be frustrated because I had mm. to explain to her that it was going to be okay my family wasn't leaving mm-hmm. my dad would be okay like I had to say these things that I didn't even believe mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that because she was grieving and so right. I think kind of being emotionally stable enough to where people can express what they're feeling without mm-hmm. feeling like they have to comfort you or make you or take care of your own emotional state in mm-hmm. addition to their mm-hmm. yeah right. That's a lot, but I think that's a good start. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a it's a really good reminder that um, there are people who are like working really hard to without realizing it a lot of times, um, and I have very much been like this. Uh, who are working really hard to get rid of any dissonance that they have in their yeah. in their life. So, so I could see someone who you know can can get away with that coming to you regularly and saying, Hey, this thing happened. I'm feeling some dissonance about it. Can you fix that for me? And what an incredible burden that is to put on you. But also, um, what that's it, that's hugely problematic. If we have some people who can just erase the dissonance while we have other people who are walking around and that's never an option. And so, um, that's one of those things that I've tried to think about. And I can kind of hear you saying like, at what point do we, actually say no you if you aren't feeling some dissonance about this stuff then um something is probably not quite right especially as a christian watching all of this happen um so uh, for people who may be listening and kind of not quite understanding some of that maybe because they're sort of new to the conversation you know i just thinking about that level of dissonance and what's turning it up and what's turning it down. And is that turning up and down happening at places that are actually um, good and true and right, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things that creates that, so my one of my favorite authors of life is Chimamanda Adichie. She is a Nigerian, um, Nigerian American, but she writes, she did a TED talk. It's called the danger of a single story. Mm-hmm. And I think, when you mm. keep hearing a single story and a single narrative that you, it's easy for you to keep that kind of shell around yourself and not know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think forums like this are important because then you get to hear another story mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. that dissonance starts kind of shifting in your head of, Oh, I always saw things this way. I always saw the immigrants as the other. Um, but now I'm hearing something different. And that is the moment when you choose what are you going to do with that? Like, are you going to kind of 
push that dissonance within you to the side and just pretend like you didn't hear it, you don't know anything about it, and recreate your safe bubble? Or are you going to pursue the path of not having all the answers and not knowing right. what to do? Are you going to pursue that path of doing the hard work and researching and maybe being open to changing your narrative a little bit? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So um, it's, it's really good to hear you talk about just the advice that you were given when you started out as an attorney and how you were basically told you care too much. Um, Cause I think, you know, just personally, I think I've even said this to you before. I wish you were my kids GAL back in the had Because that's what you want as, you know, like as an advocate and and even as somebody in the position of needing representation, like you want someone who cares and Mm -hmm. who takes your story home with you. And so I just wonder, like, you carry a lot of burden, you know, you carry the burden of being a black woman, you carry the burden of being an immigrant in a country where immigrants are labeled, you know, as um, rapists and all these horrible things. And then you also carry these burdens of other people who you're representing. And so I'm just curious, how do you take care of yourself? How do you stay centered and grounded? And how do you continue, um, like, how do you stay healthy enough to be able to do the good work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So I think this is my favorite question because I am the self-care queen. I'm in terms of <laughs> yes. my friend group. Because I it, love watching, I love watching your stories on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> like, thank you. Well, what is she up to now? <laughs> like one day, at one moment, you're talking about the executive order, and the next one, you're like talking about bath bombs, and I'm like, she has got it figured out. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I try to. I give myself so much grace. I don't expect myself to be perfect, and one of the big things um, that I did the week of the first executive order. I had an influx of 15 new clients and Mm. my schedule, because I do so much, I really kind of put a max on how many clients I take on at a time. So I don't Mm -hmm. take on more than like 12 clients at a time. So having 15 new clients, Mm. most of which needed to be pro bono was huge because I had Mm. my full schedule of 12 clients. And so I just gave myself grace and permission to not be the perfect advocate for them. Mm -hmm. And I told them, you know, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. I may not be able to fit in some of you guys, but this is what I do when I really have the time. And I, you guys are a little out of fear and I get that this is going on, but I have to be healthy enough to provide that representation to you. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to get to that point where there's need and you know that you can meet the need if you worked a little bit more and worked yeah. some harder hours. But mm-hmm. recognizing that you have to be efficient in the long term. And I, I know what burnout feels like. I know mm-hmm. what it's like to have to get 10 hours of sleep every night to be functional. Mm-hmm. I know what mm-hmm. it's like to like be super depressed and not want to go to work and have a whole bunch of clients pile up on you. And so I never want to get to that state again, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And it's very That's important. So yeah, it's very important to me to do things to take care of myself. And so one of that, those, the biggest things have been giving myself permission not to be perfect, which is huge for me. I want to be good enough, mm-hmm. but I don't, I know that I'm not going to be the perfect advocate, the perfect attorney, the perfect friend, sister, mm-hmm. whatever role that I play. I just want to be good enough for my people to know that I care. And, and then with that, just give like paying attention to my body, because I believe that the body signals what it needs. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I, I know when I've had my limit for the day, and I will stop even if I'm in the middle of I've rescheduled meetings with really important people because my body said stop. Mm -hmm. And I really I honor myself 
and I honor my healing before I honor people's opinions of me. Mm-hmm. And so it's I love that. I and I've had to learn to do that. And so I that's something that I just encourage people who are love warriors and on the front lines because you your body will tell you when you're ready to stop. And the more you push against that and the more you resist, the less your body will trust you with that information. Mm-hmm. And so I see it as, you know, my the number one relationship that I have far from God is my relationship to myself. Like he entrusted me with myself before he entrusted me with anybody else. And so it is my absolute responsibility to listen to that, to know what I need, to know the things that refresh me and to take days off when I just need to take days off from things. Um, I try to plan my schedule in a way that gives me time off. And so I know like last week was a court week for me and I know that court is absolutely draining and I have to put in so much external energy. Mm-hmm. So whenever mm-hmm. I have to go to court, the whole week leading up to court week, I just fill it up with things that give me confidence and give me joy because I know that court takes away my confidence and robs me of my joy. Mm -hmm. And so I am very intentional about the way that I spend my time, the way that I set up my schedule so that these things don't kind of pile up on top of each other Mm -hmm. and make me Mm -hmm. lose my cool. I love that you do that on the front end. I feel like most, most people do that in a reactionary way. Like, Oh, now my, um, my confidence and my joy have been stolen, so I need to build them back up. But to do it ahead of time is so wise. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. I listened to a podcast once that talked about the idea of alignment before action. Mm-hmm. And so in my kind of circle, I call it the thing before the thing. The mm-hmm. action is not the most important thing. The alignment is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And so getting into that space where I feel inspired and confident before the thing is like totally what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's that's so, so good. good. I think people go their whole lives trying to figure that out. And, mm-hmm. and how old are you, Celeste? Twenty-two. Twenty-two. That's awesome. It. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that makes me so excited. I mean, just think about how much God is going to use you when you're already doing so much at twenty-two. It's really beautiful. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. So, kind of one of the last questions I have for you is. How does your faith affect your work? Hmm. So I think my faith is the catalyst for why, for what I do, why I do, what mm-hmm. I, why I do what I do. I, so really cheesy story. Um, my mom has this house that she absolutely loves um, and it just went on sale and the house is like a $3 million house. Mm-hmm. And so of course we're not going to get it, but today I was talking to her and I just said, mom, why are we not the, pe- why are we not those people who just like care more about the $3 million house than like investing $3 million into helping people? Like, why are we not those people? Why are we not the family? You know, like, I was with like $3 million, with $3 million. like 10 bedrooms and moving in, like, you know, everything. And, you know, and, we were kind of joking back and forth about it, but I was like, come on. Cause my parents have a school in Nigeria. They have so many things that they tangibly mm. invest in with, for other people. And it's not really about them. It's just living their lives in a way that really makes meaning and contribution in the world. So I've grown up seeing that, but I think my mom's answer was in light of eternity. And she just mm. loves, growing mm. that you know, in light of yeah. eternity, when you know that all your needs have already been met, what is the best way to spend this money what is the best way to spend this time 
when you know that you don't have to do it to get validation and love, but because you've already been validated and loved, what is the best way to spend that love that you've been given? And mm. I think that's that's really how, you know, the gospel of Jesus, that's really how, why I do what I do, because I believe everything is a gift. And the way that I work, the way that I live, the way that I love is really my way of just loving back, the way that I listen. I'm all this, like, I'm the gift, I'm the sacrifice, I'm the altar. And uh, I think one of my favorite preacher theologians always talks about this Eucharistic nature of humans, how we're constantly being poured out and being mm-hmm. broken. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I hate that so much. And God, I've come to where I'm just like, I don't want to be broken. I don't want to be poured out. I just want to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the end of it, when I have seasons of just being without being poured out and being broken, when I just have seasons of rest, at the end of that season of rest, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to be poured back out again, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, so yeah. I think faith, because I've been loved, because I've been validated, because <laughs> because I have that great love story, and it's really cheesy, but I just, I want to share that mm-hmm. in whatever I do. Mm-hmm. That's not cheesy. That's no. awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Well, do you have anything else that you would like us to know and our listeners of Upside Down Podcast to know? Um, I think deconstruction is a great thing. And I think that's what you ladies are doing and helping people do. And so I'm just such a big fan of what you do. And I'm such a big fan of everyone who listens because I think this mm-hmm. is, is such a sacred space to come and to really let the gospel and let Jesus turn your life upside down. And I always, like, I call Jesus my Middle Eastern friend. And so, (laughs) you know, like, I just love that this Middle Eastern guy came at, like, a random time in civilization and he gets to turn our lives upside down. And he gets Mm -hmm. to, like, make our stories so different and the weak becomes the strong and the strong becomes the weak and the poor and the rich are the same person. And in him, we're all one. Like, I love... I love that. And so I love that we all get to live lives that are a reflection of that, whatever that looks like. And I think our journeys are going to be so different. But like we can honor and we can trust the journeys that we're being led towards Mm -hmm. because we can trust him. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. So, So where can we find you on the internet? Okay, so if you are looking for the law firm, of course, um, the name of the firm is Afangade Global. Um, you can find us at lawyerswhocare.org or afangadeglobal.com if you can spell Afangade. Um, <laughs> but you can find me on salemafangade.com. And I, I love to write. I love to share poetry and self-care tips and other randomness that Jesus is teaching me. I am also on Instagram at Yoga Lawyer Salem. And I talk about, I love busting people's bubbles of <laughs> should be. So I love that I'm a yogi. I love that I'm a lawyer. Um, I think it messes people up. Yeah. I love that you know, <laughs> I fit into different boxes that people would not mm-hmm. necessarily want to fit me in. And mm-hmm. so you can find me talking about the intersection of life and all of those lovely things mm-hmm. on the internet. And do you have a podcast? Yes, I do. So I do have a podcast for African women. 
I mean, everyone can listen, but I think African women relate more to, to it. But we talk about pretty deep stuff. Um, it's called Thrive Tables. And one of the things that I do is two years ago, I started an organization with my best friend called Thrive African Girl. And we work with college age women that are Africans all over the globe. And we just kind of create this one big networking group and have parties in different parts of Africa. So it's pretty fun, pretty dope. But we just started a podcast maybe three months ago to talk about all the deep issues that Africans don't really talk about. We talk about mental health, we talk about self-care, we talk about sex and dating and all of the really fun things that are kind of off the table for conversation. So if you guys are interested, it is Thrive Table Podcast. And yeah, I do lots of really random things. I've written a yoga manual that you can get. (laughs) And I write books about self-care and I write poetry and just lots of randomness on my website. So you guys are welcome to check it out and get, grab whatever speaks to you. Oh, also, I would like to add one last thing. So, <laughs> Go ahead. Go for it. Yeah, so because I am an attorney, I do have to say that nothing I have said here is legal advice. Mm-hmm. And of course, there is no representation made that if you hire me, the quality of my legal services will be greater than the quality of other legal services. The bar makes us say that so no one... You know, mm-hmm. so you're aware of all of that. Right. On, mm-hmm. But I just wanted to put that out there. So I'm covered. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I just have to ask real quick. There might be a lot of families, you know, a lot of us who host our adoptive families. And there might be people who are in the process right now. Do you do any adoption law and international adoption stuff? I personally don't. But we have okay. attorneys at our firm who do. So if you're interested, yeah, our firm is all over Africa. So if you're adopting from Africa, and we have a couple of attorneys who do domestic U.S. adoptions here as well. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and of course, on the immigration side of it, I can take care of all the immigration adoption paperwork that you need. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you need to have someone who knows what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of helpful, especially with immigration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Well, Salam, thank you so much. It's so good to talk to you. I want to keep talking with you. (laughs) I know. I feel like I'm like picking my jaw up off the floor. Like, this is so good. I just want to keep listening. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, ladies. All right. Yeah, me too. So yeah. thank you guys all for listening. We will link to all of Salem's links in our show notes as well. We'll link to that TED Talk that she referenced. I'm really interested to, to listen to that now, The Danger of a Single Story. Mm-hmm. We'll link to different ways that you can find Salem. So you can find that at UpsideDownPodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram, Upside Down Podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.